Welcome to the Coastal Addiction Lifestyle Podcast, where we talk about all things coastal. We bring you long format conversations from people who live that coastal addiction life. I'm your host, Tommy, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Tribe, we're here with Captain Glenn Austin today from Going Coastal Charters. Let me just start this off by saying if you want to do your inshore fishing or nearshore fishing, and probably one of the best places in the state of Florida, get a hold of Captain Glenn with Going Coastal Charters and go out to Sebastian. I guarantee you, you're gonna have a good time. Captain, man, thanks for being here today. I uh, appreciate it, Tommy. I appreciate you having me, man. So we went, actually went fishing with you the other day and uh, T landed that uh, juvenile Goliath. Uh, grouper, yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't find any big redfish. Um, you know, with this cold water temps, you never know what's going to happen. So we uh, we gave it a good try and uh, ended up getting the jewfish for him. Yeah, that, you know, it's just, it was our day. It was the day we chose and that's what the weather gave us. So yep. we just rolled with it. Um, but I have seen prior to that and just after that, looks like you were finding some big old reds out there. Yeah, it seems like every other day, man, I'm getting on some big ones. It's, uh, you, you get four or five or six or, or whatever one day and then the next couple of days it might be a little slower. And then they'll come back in and feed again. A lot of it depends on the moon and the tide. Yeah, well, I guess I guess I selected a bad day. <laughs> uh, you never know. You never know. It could uh, it could start off slow and turn out to be a banner day. So yeah. we just uh, gave, gave it our all and uh, ended up with the, the, the grouper. Well, it was a good day. T was happy. Uh, he's told all of his friends about it, so he was super excited. Um, you do more than just charter fish. You also build boats you have two of your own like you dabble in a little bit of everything well I, I grew up Melbourne Beach so I was a block from the ocean two blocks from the river so I grew up surfing fishing uh, working on boats my whole life so what I do now I worked for Bombardier Corporation for 21 years mm. so I did R&D on sea watercraft and a lot of their jet boats when they're being developed and then I got on the marketing side and then they bought Johnson Evinrude in 2001 so I switched over to that side of the business and got into more of the fishing aspect and worked on outboards and, and promoting uh, the saltwater fishing tournaments and stuff. So that kind of gave me a link to working with some boat companies. So I worked with a few boat companies, helping them design layouts. And uh, now I also sell some boats made out of Texas shoalwater boats. So we get some custom boats built, bring them over, put them together how the customer wants them and send them on their way and let them enjoy it. We're going to start you a YouTube channel with you building these boats. Shoot, man, there's <laughs> not enough time, not enough time in the day. We'll, you just, know? we'll just add it into your, your daily schedule. Yeah, of just, just add hours. another another t 12 hours in there. <laughs> so I'll work uh, 20 hours a day instead. That's cool. So um, we talked to you about picking us up at the Sebastian South Ramp. Is that kind of common or? Most of my customers will drive around the mainland side. So I, I grew up in Melbourne Beach. Uh, born and raised over there. I live in Palm Bay now. Swore I'd never live in Palm Bay, but we've got a nice development, not development, but a nice neighborhood and nice little community here, and it was affordable. And so we moved over there. So what I do is I just trailer over to the Sebastian Yacht Club. Uh, it gives me easy access to the inlet, the Sebastian River, okay. the lagoon from Grant, Palm Bay, all the way down through Vero. So I'll either launch, typically I'll launch at the Yacht Club, otherwise we'll launch up at Christensen's and Grant. We're gonna fish mostly north for the day. That's cool. So you, I've seen tarpon fishing, I've seen red fishing, snook, I've seen you doing a little bit offshore. How do your seasons roll? Like how do you determine where you're gonna go besides the client saying, I just wanna catch fish? Well, that's, that's a very good question and that's something that uh, a lot of guys focus on just fishing the inlet. And if you focus on just fishing, you're missing out on a lot because there's a lot of opportunity here, like I said. Um, Spring, uh, let me back up a little bit. Fall, winter, and spring, we spend a lot of time in the lagoon. If we can get outside, depending on weather, because you know we always can't get outside. Uh, that day we went and caught bait, it was pretty darn rough. So if we can get outside, we'll fish outside or in the inlet. But there's a lot of days where you can't even get in the inlet and fish. Uh, a, it's too rough. B, it's, the current's too, too much. So you've got to have a backup plan, plan B, plan C. Maybe in a plan D. <laughs> so you got to be able to fish in the lagoon, and that's why we do it. You know, we fish anywhere from Palm Bay all the way down into Vera Beach and the lagoon, then we get back up at the Sebastian River. 
So if the wind's howling out of the straight north or straight south, it's hard to even fish the lagoon. So you're stuck in the inlet on the, on the backside of the inlet uh, where it's calm to try and stay out of the wind or you're back on the Sebastian River. There's only a few places you can get out of the wind if you got straight north or straight south. There are a few coves and a few bays, but um, you're pretty relegated. So again, that's why we kind of try to fish around the Sebastian area because you got more opportunity. So fall, winter, spring, we'll fish the lagoon mostly. As soon as we can spend more time outside, we're out along the beach tarpon fishing most of the summer. I've seen you with um, some big tarpon in there. How'd that go this year? Fantastic year. The last three years have been really, really good. I've kind of focused on it about three years ago to get away from that inlet scene because the inlet gets crowded. Um, more and more boaters are here, so the inlet gets crowded. So we'll go run the beaches and tarpon fish, or we'll go offshore. We did a lot offshore this summer, too. During so, the Lake Atlantic days? During the Lake Atlantic days, <laughs> yeah. And then we even had some days where we tarpon fished in the morning, ran offshore later in the morning. Oh, cool. So, I mean, you can kind of mix it up. It's hard to do that unless the bite's really good, where you know you can go down, pick up a few big fish, and run offshore to get something to eat. But we do have some nearshore reefs that are only, you know, eight, 10 miles offshore. That it's not bad to run to when it's like you said, Lake Atlantic. Yeah. So you go put some time in on the beach. If A, it's a good bite, you get a couple of fish quick in the morning, run offshore, or B, it's a slow bite. And you say, hey, let's, you know, change it up. Let's run offshore, you can do that. So you said there's a couple of reefs, eight, 10 miles offshore. Um, what are you primarily targeting out there? How deep's the water out there? Uh, when I say the eight, 10 mile stuff, most of it's 60 foot. Okay. So uh, there's even a couple, if you run all the way in the Atlantic, they're only four or five miles off the beach. Yeah. But so like I said, if we run up the beach and the bite's hot and we want to go change up, we can just dart up offshore. Or if we run up the beach and there's nothing going on, all right, let's go hit some reefs near shore. And that's what we'll go do, hit those reefs in 60 foot. And you get everything from snapper, uh, big mangroves to cobia. Sometimes we run into dolphin, king mackerel, trigger fish, a good variety of stuff just that close to shore yeah yeah it's not far away i mean uh, a lot of times a lot of times the bigger um the bigger congregations of the snapper and the bigger muttons most of them are out in that 90 foot area but we get a, quite a few big mangroves there in that 60 foot area that's cool a lot of people don't think about that they think they they got to go offshore fishing they got to go out 20 30 40 miles or somebody mm -hmm. who came down from the carolinas who's used to running, you know, a good 60, 70 miles offshore in a day. And most of the offshore guys here will do that. They'll hit that 90 foot ledge out there, 18 miles out, you know, depending if they go north or south or where they are, mm -hmm. they'll go right out to that ledge and they'll fish those ledges and work around there. But we have some stuff that's inshore that's not bad fishing at all. No, it's really good. And we've got some new artificial stuff south of the inlet within the last couple of years that's loaded with king mackerel, lane snapper, uh, sharks and some cobia, you know, throughout the summer. So that can be good as well. Speaking of sharks, what brings probably for you the biggest smile on a lot of the anglers that you take out on their face? What, what is that? You know, um, you get a lot of people from up north, right? Mm -hmm. All they've ever caught is bass. You bring them down here and they get on the saltwater side. And I, mean, I don't care whether it's a snook or a redfish or a tarpon or a shark or a trout or a bluefish. The way the saltwater fish pull puts a big smile on everybody's face. And I haven't met anybody from the Midwest that didn't have the best time of their life catching a shark. And There's I just something about it, huh? Yeah, I don't care if it was a, you know, a bonnet head that was 10, 12 pounds, you know, or a 36 inch long bonnet head to a, a Atlantic sharp nose that don't really get over four feet. I mean, those things pull as hard as anything. Or a big black tip, man. The big black tips are a lot of fun. We try to spend a lot of time in the fall and the, in the spring chasing the black tips because they're going to feed in along the beaches along with, a, with the um, Spanish mackerel and the bluefish and the jacks. So when the jacks and all those fish are eating on the beach, the black tips will come in and feed on them. So we'll go in there and uh, either live bait or the best thing to do is throw poppers at them. Watching a black tip shark annihilate a popper is one of the funnest things I've ever done. Now that's got to be cool to get on video. Yeah, and I've got some video. We actually did a video with Black Tip H um, was a year and a half ago, and it was uh, an awesome video watching those. He drone shot at some of those black tips jumping on poppers, and they would follow those poppers all the way back to the boat, literally from, let's say you made a 40-yard cast, they're all the way back 10 feet off the boat eating that popper at the side of the boat because they're swiping at it, missing it, you know, a million times. Oh, wow. Really, really cool. 
That is going to be some cool footage. So, we'll have to so, drag a drone out and go do this. Oh yeah, the drone, the drone gets some really killer footage. And I'll be honest with you, and it, you know, I hate to tell people this too much, but we actually were able to find the schools of sharks with a drone. So I'd throw the drone up in the air and run it down the beach and find the schools, and you know, that's where we could focus on fishing. And as the boat traffic would run by, believe it or not, sharks are very spooky. As the boat traffic would run through, that those schools of sharks. We're talking schools of hundreds and hundreds of black tips. We're not talking, you know, five or ten black oh, tips. Wow. Those schools of black tips would just take off, and they would be afraid of the boats and leave. And then you'd have to go down and find them again. Hey, well, I mean, it's a tool. I mean, I've seen a lot of boats going out offshore that have drones with them just yeah. to help find it. I mean, radar, radar to find the birds, right? I mean, it's That's right. all a tool. But you never think of sharks as being spooky. No. Never think. They're, they're like the king of the ocean, but those sharks would spook and take off and be gone. Man. So you put, throw the drone up, go find them again. Or a lot of times you could wait it out and they would work their way back to that same area. You talked about uh, sometimes the inlet would be super crowded with boats. And Florida is just one of those places where I mean, you can basically boat 365 days a year minus a hurricane or a super cold snap. You don't want to go out in it. How, uh, how packed have you seen the inlet, and what's the scariest moment drifting that inlet? Well, what I will say is in the last three to five years, we've got a lot more guides in the area than we've ever had. We've probably got 20 or more new guides in the area, which will be in there on a regular basis. Um, not only that is we have a lot more people moving down here full time. They're retired from up north, and we have people moving up from up south, from down south. So that inlet is such a hot spot for the snook. They congregate at the tip of the jetty, and everybody loves to eat snook. So on any given day, you'll have from 10 to 30 boats anchored around the tip of that jetty, snook fishing. I've seen the, just the, the anglers on the pier shoulder to shoulder out there not not to mention the <laughs> anglers on the pier that was next thing you might have 50 guys in the tip throwing out you're throwing in so i've slowed down i haven't quit fishing it by any means but i still fish the inlet quite a bit but i've slowed down my fishing at the inlet throughout those times when i know there's plenty of other good fishing around just because a lot of my customers are like i don't want to sit in that crowd i don't want to deal with that crowd i want to go have a good time i want to relax and fish and catch some fish so that's why I've kind of moved away, focused more on tarpon fishing, more on near shore fishing, offshore fishing, than just sitting in the inlet all the time. And again, in the fall when it's too rough, we'll run back inside, catch the same fish you catch inside plus more than you catch at the inlet because you got the red fish in there, and most of them are slot reds inshore, of course. Mm -hmm. um, you got the big snook, you got the slot snook, you got little snook, you've got plenty of big trout that you get on the live bait in the fall time. So there's a lot more opportunity than just sitting in the inlet. Well, that's, that's good. And that's why you're such a great captain. You, you have your area, and, but you work all over it, and you're not just stuck in that one little thing. You're not a radio fisherman. And you, and you have to be that way. I mean, there are several guys in the area that only know how to fish the inlet and focus on the inlet. If there's not a bite in the inlet, they're in trouble because there's nothing else they can do. Mm. But, you know, the, the better captains can move around and, and do more things than just sit in the inlet. So we've seen an increase in traffic just from people moving from south up here to this area, people moving from up north down to this area. Um, boating traffic in itself, does that really affect a lot of the fishing in the inlet, outside of the inlet, or maybe coming, coming towards the inlet? Is that driven a lot away? Have you noticed anything? Boating traffic absolutely affects the fishing in the inlet. Um, when the bite's hot at the tip of that jetty, if you're anchored up, the bite's hot. There can be 20 or 30 boats, everybody's anchored. So everybody will catch fish. So that's not the norm, though. That's, you know, I won't say it's few and far between, but it's not the norm. Um, that bite drift in the inlet, if you're not there at the right time, then you might miss it if the traffic's heavy. If the traffic's heavy, those fish aren't going to come up and eat like they normally would because you're not anchored. There's boats running out. You're drifting through the middle. Um, we saw a huge increase in traffic since COVID hit. When COVID hit, Everybody and their brother went and bought new boats. I don't blame them. Get out <laughs> on the water, get away from people. Uh, and a lot of people are fishing. I've got a couple of my family members who went and bought new boats and got into offshore fishing and everything. So I understand where they're coming from. You want to get away from the crowds and the inland, or you're not going to movies anymore. You're not going to concerts anymore. You're not doing a lot of that stuff. So might as well go hit the water and, 
it definitely has brought a lot more traffic and uh, it's made the fishing a little more difficult. I can, I, I can only imagine being out there all the time like you are because you, you're following the fish, you know where they're at, you're doing it all the time and you're just seeing this increase in that traffic. I, I, you know, from a boat salesman's point, I'd be ecstatic. COVID was probably the greatest thing for them. I talked to a couple of, a couple of marinas um, there with the salesman and they're like, yeah, we don't, we, we're, we have a boat shortage as boats are built that we've put on order. We're selling them before they ever get to our lot. We're putting a name next to them, taking in a deposit for them and they're already lined up. And you know, there's no, there's no COVID when you're offshore. <laughs> nope, no COVID offshore. And that's the beauty of it. I've had a lot of people call me and say, are you still running trips because of COVID? And I said, we're, we're wide open. We're out in the sunshine. We're out in the fresh air. Um, we're not huddled around one little area of the boat. We can spread out and have a good time. So, yeah, and like you said, there's a lot of boats being sold. I've got, you know, like I said, my family members have bought some. Uh, I got some friends that are dealers that are just absolutely killing it right now. We don't know if that's going to change. It could change with the new economics, what's going on. It's hard to say, but right now, uh, this last nine months have been phenomenal for boat sales. I've got... I've got five boats on order now with working on a few more for some of my customers. So that's crazy. It's so, uh, been pretty good. You you're building them you talk about you got five boats on order. What are you building right now? So what I do is I, I get some boats from Texas called Shoalwater boats is a Texas tunnel hull. So we build them from 19 to 23 feet. So what I do is I get a bare hull over here. I'll completely rig the live wells, do all the electrical, um, I've got some people to rig the motors for me and just build a complete boat for the customer. So we can custom build it with a tower, with a center console, however they want to set it up. And you also have a shoal water boat? Yeah, we run one shoal water and we have a wellcraft as well. Okay, we went on the wellcraft. Yeah, we went on the wellcraft. I did some work for wellcraft, help them do the design and layouts because they're based in Michigan. Mm -hmm. They're a freshwater, more recreational oriented boat. So they brought me on as a consultant to kind of help them design the layout to make sure it worked for the fishermen and they made sure it worked for the family. Now that was a pretty nice boat that we were on, your Wellcraft, what is that one? That's the 241 Bay. So there's a 221 Bay, a 241 Bay and then they've got models from 20 all the way up to 40 feet center consoles. Whew, I couldn't imagine, I mean I've seen pictures of 40 foot center consoles, I just can't imagine. It's ridiculous, <laughs> it's ridiculous. I, I mean there's so many Let's just say five hundred thousand to one point two million dollar center consoles yeah, out there. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. So your Wellcraft two forty one, that was a nice boat, right? Um, plenty of room on it. I think it would be great for families, even a tw you know, a twenty footer that were looking to get into it. Would you recommend something like that for somebody who's new? Maybe they do a lot of coastal fishing, but now they're they're they've saved their pennies, they're ready to get into a boat, but they want to try to be a little more universal. Well, what I try to do is I try to recommend to most people, and even if you're an offshore guy, I recommend most people to get into the bay boats. And the, the reason being is because most of the bay boats in that 22 to 24 foot range, and they make bay boats 26, 27 foot, they ride as good as the center consoles in the same size range. They do have lower size. But what I try to tell people is you can only fish offshore so many days a year. It's too windy, too rough, and you're going offshore, you got a 24 foot center console with super high sides, a real deep V. You're not gonna wanna be in it in that, or you're not gonna wanna be, wanna be out there in a bay boat. So if you have a bay boat, you get there and you're like, oh man, the forecast is off, it's way too rough, what are we gonna do? You just go inside, you run up the river, fish up and down the river and still have a good time. Yeah. Or fish in and out of the inlet with a trolling motor, you can have a good time. If you got that 24 foot center console, you can't put a trolling motor on it, you can't get to some of the areas that are still holding the fish to have a good time in the river. And that's the difference in the two. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with the, the bay boat style. I think they're great universal. Um, I've seen them become even more and more family oriented here lately. Absolutely. Cushions in up, up front for sitting and... You can get that whole boat cushion, front, back, sides. I mean, they've got all kinds of packages and all the manufacturers are going that way. Yeah. So all of them. and. Um, and like I said, it's just too too versatile. And they ride just as good as a center console. So, and there's more storage, to be honest with you. So, you know, you've got that front flat deck and you've got a rear deck and the live well space and the storage space is better than most center consoles. Now, the downside is they're a little more money than some of the center consoles. And the reason being is 
all that storage space when they have to build more hatches, build more wells inside, it adds a lot of money. So some of the bay boats are more expensive than center consoles from the same manufacturer. But the versatility, and, and maybe some of the reason the bay boat's a little more expensive is because people are putting power poles on them, they're putting trolling motors on them, and that adds a lot of money too. And big old motors on the bay boats. Yep, everybody wants to go fast. Yeah, nobody's, nobody's running around with a 125, 150 on the back of them. They're all 300s, 350s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. they're all putting it's it in there. Heck, CV, and CV makes one, a 27-footer with twin 200s on it. On <laughs> a bay boat, that's ridiculous. That is crazy. You're dead. It's a tank. Mm. So your shoalwater boat that you have, what do you, what are you run in there and how's that set up? That's a 23-foot boat. It's got a tower on it. That boat will actually run in four inches of water on plane for a long ways. Mm. Um, it'll it'll float in about eight inches. So now the downside is you can't. I don't pu push pull it because it's not really a pulling boat. So you can't run a trolling motor in anything under sixteen inches of water. But what you can do is if you need to get over a bar, you drift over a bar, or run slow over a bar with the outboard, or whether it'll get you to places that you can't get in a lot of boats. So how much fishing have you done on that shoal water now that you, you have it here? I've fished the shoal water pretty solid for nine years. I get a new one every year. So actually, no, 11 years, I'm sorry. So I fished it pretty solid for about 11 years. Um, it rides very, very well. It's got an eight foot, eight inch beam on it. So nice there's away. a ton of fishing room on it. Super stable. And I can get, like I said, get to most places I can't get to in the, in the well craft. Uh, but it, it's a different boat. I mean, they both have pluses and minuses. I love the shoal water. It's, I can run a smaller motor on it to go to the same speed. I don't have to have a big heavy motor. Downside is it doesn't like a real heavy head chop. So if I'm running the beach and it's windy and kicks up, it doesn't like that. But most, most flats boats or bay boats don't like it. Yeah, speaking of flats boats, I went out on the Miss Cape Canaveral when I was probably, uh, I don't know, about 15 years old at the time with my dad. And it was Lake Atlantic at the time. And we were probably maybe four miles off out of, out of the port. And there was a flats boat with a kicker motor on the back of it. And this dude's just cruising along. And I remember thinking to myself, that is the bravest SOB I've ever met in my life. Because that thing wasn't but 14 foot if it was, if it was a foot to begin with. I've seen some guys in 16 foot Carolina skiffs out at the Bethel Shoals, which is 18 miles from the inlet. <laughs> I actually have some friends that have taken 16 foot flats boats over the Bahamas. Wow. From, uh, from, from West Palm. That is a run. I bet you they got a lot of extra fuel with them. Uh, well, it's only 50, what, 58 miles from West Palm. So it's not a bad run. They can probably run that on one tank, but they better not get into some bad seas. Any at all. Because uh, they can eat up their fuel supply pretty quick. Man. Oof. What, um, what is your, your daily operation with your guide service here? So you, you get up here, you run over, you put in, you, you took us out to go catch bait. You had a little bit left on there. So how do you plan out a day for somebody when you, when you get a charter? A lot of it depends on the time of the year, bait availability. Um, both my son and I run the charter, so depending on who's doing it. He likes to fish completely different than I do. He loves to fish offshore. He wants to put most of his time out there. I like fishing inshore, near shore. I love fishing offshore, but it's a much longer day and it's a lot more work. Um, I have a lot of steady customers. I've been doing it for 11 years now. My son's only been doing it for a little over two. So a lot of my customers want to come back and do some of the same things they've done in the past. So we'll go out in the morning. If we can't catch bait, we know there's not bait around and we can buy it, we'll go buy it. We want to make it easier for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, if it's easy to catch, the expense of the bait, some of it's three dollars. Some of the baits are three dollars a piece, depending on what you're buying. Oof. So if you need 30, 40 baits in a day, that eats up every bit of the little profit you had. So we try to spend some time catching bait. Some days easier than others. Some days you can't buy it. Some days it's super hard to catch, but we'll go put in that time to catch the bait and uh, use that, depending on what we're doing. Um, this time of year, we'll use a lot of artificial as well. We're pompano fishing, we're mackerel fishing, we're blue fishing, uh, triple tail fishing. So you can do a lot of that with artificial. But if we're specifically trying to target some of these bigger fish in the inlet or off the beach, a lot of times live bait is the key, so you gotta put in the time to get it. 
Mm. So okay. we'll launch, take the people to get it. If we're using pilchers or something easy to net, there's some by the ramp, we'll just throw them right by the ramp, be done, be gone. We usually have a pretty good handle on where the bait is because we're out, you know, four, four to five days a week normally, sometimes seven days a week. So you get in a routine, you know where the bait's at, and you try and hit those same areas where it's at. That's, that's good then. I mean, that's part of being that captain who's out there all the time. Yeah, I mean, we do, I, I, I do, I was doing about 250 trips a year. Wow. Um, the last year or two with COVID, I've slowed down probably to 200 trips. Well, ish, maybe a little more. But I've slowed down to 200 yeah. trips. It's, and then uh, I build boats on the side. Yeah, there's no, uh, there's no, <laughs> no free time, that's for sure. <laughs> I work harder for less money than I did when I was in the corporate world, that's for sure. Speaking of corporate world, with Bombardier, you got in with them and you were helping doing some development. So tell us a little bit about what you did with them. Like, what was your job with, with Bombardier? Well, I was pretty much fresh out of high school. I worked for my dad doing some plastic fabrication out West Melbourne and he got slow, told me, hey, why don't you go find something else to meet, keep these guys that are married with kids working. I'm like, okay. I was 19 at the time. So Bombardier had just moved down here from Canada because they had a place they could test their CDs year round. They hired me as a test rider and, and found out that I could do machine work and mechanical work. So they brought me inside and um, not only did I test ride, but I built fabricated parts for prototypes and tested all the prototypes, did a lot of the testing with them. And, and introduced the product in late 87 for the 88 model year. You literally, at the age of 19, probably got the best job for anybody who lives that coastal life is a test rider for jet yeah. skis. Yeah, growing, growing up surfing and fishing, then getting on the sea dues and I spent most of my days at Monster Hole at the inlet, jumping oh, yeah. waves and surfing waves. And, and from then on, I never surfed that much anymore because I'd ride the sea dues out there and I'd surf Monster Hole or I mean, we did some pretty insane stuff on them back in the day, that's for sure. Because they were super light, super nimble, and a lot of fun. Um, that's all part of testing, right? That's right. That's Break right. it. <laughs> yep. Yeah, well, we, we broke some at the inlet, had to get towed in, and uh, went out in a tropical storm one time. It was blowing 45 miles an hour with 12-footers, and wasn't the smartest thing to do, but we had one Sea-Doo and one chase boat, and we took it out the inlet. And I remember going over those waves, going out the inlet, and just going over the peaks of those, they were probably 12 to 15 foot going out the inlet. And a sea dew is the safest thing in the world out there, or any watercraft, because you can fall off, get back on, you can roll over, get back up and go. Going over the top of those waves, it felt like it was just going to blow you completely over backwards. And at that point, we uh, had some common sense, turned around, headed back in, because <laughs> with no chase, the chase boat wasn't getting out there. It wasn't going to make it. So with only one person on the sea dew, you... Uh, Turn around, got your butt back inside. <laughs> that was just one of the crazy. We did all kinds of crazy things that probably shouldn't encourage people to do, but what we were we, testing. We've all done that, right? Yeah, yeah. So you so you did some machine work for them? Did some machine work, building prototypes, testing. Uh, we did a lot of the whole design work, and I did the design. I worked in the design group for, gosh, from 87 to about 98. Then I got a marketing degree and went on the marketing side. And how did marketing treat you? Uh, I liked it. You know, it, there's a time where you want to focus on a career, make more money than just having fun all the time. So that brought me a big step up on my pay scale and, you know, gave me more room for advancement because, you know, raising a family, you don't want to just be a mechanic test rider your whole life. So that's why I started doing that. And, um, you know, worked my way from product development into product manager, and then I worked on the uh, Evinrude side and got into tournament support. I ran a team of four guys that ran around the country with Evinrude working on the saltwater tournaments. So we covered all the uh, SK Kingfish tournaments, all the ESPN Redfish tournaments, and IFA Redfish tournaments. And we had four guys that ran around the country that if a guy had an Evinrude and his engine blew up, we'd put a powerhead on it overnight so he could fish the next day. So you guys were the Evinrude mechs at, at the tournaments for Evinrude-sponsored teams. Correct. So I had uh, one, two, three, four, about eight teams that I ran their sponsorship contracts, you know, giving them product, making sure they had what they needed to go fish. So, And then supported a bunch of guys. And that's kind of how I got into guiding because I met a lot of guides doing that, met, became real good friends with them. And, uh, you know, thought, shoot, man, if I ever change careers maybe i'll just become a guide and have a good time being a guide 
So that's kind of what led me into guide and working with all those <laughs> tournament teams and guide. Because like I said, I grew up fishing. I grew up on the water. I was a block from the ocean, two blocks from the river. When I was four or five years old, I'd walk down to the beach with my mom, surf fish, go surfing, skimboarding. Uh, me and my brothers would get on our bicycles right up to Melbourne Beach Pier. We didn't care if we were catching snapper or blowfish or sailor's choice or trout or whatever. We just wanted to fish. So. Sailor's choice. I haven't heard that word in a while. No, no well, that's what we called them. Yeah. That's what we always called them. And I heard somebody else calling that the other day. I'm like, man, I haven't heard that in a long time. <laughs> but no, we catch whatever. I mean, that, hey, as a kid, six, eight years old, you didn't care what you caught. No. It's not like it is today where everybody has to catch a snook or a big redfish. And that's why I love taking kids out because kids just want to catch fish. Yeah. They don't care what they're catching. They want to go have a good time. But when they catch that big fish or they catch that big redfish or catch that goliath grouper or catch that snook or whatever... They're even more excited. Or sharks. They're even more excited. Oh, yeah. T's already said he wants to go back out and he wants to catch a shark. And I said, we'll just catch whatever we catch, buddy. And he's like, ah. No, I'm catching a shark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, there's sharks are a lot of fun, man. I did catch sharks, like I told you. And catch them on top water. I even have, uh, I even got a picture I'll show you a little later. We were, I was down in West Palm with Blacktip H. Again, doing some filming, catching Bonita and sandbar sharks and everything. And we have the sharks so fired up because we catch the bonita. And as we pull them up to the boat, you'd pull them away from the sharks and pull them away from the sharks. And the sharks would get in a frenzy. And we actually had one grab onto the side of the boat. Well, first of all, it grabbed onto the trolling motor and started thrashing around on the trolling motor. I was mad. Broke the prop on the trolling motor. <laughs> then he goes around a couple minutes later, grabs a hold of the back of the outboard, grabs a prop on the outboard. Mm. And shaking, the whole motor's shaking back and forth the outboard. I'm like, whoa. And then probably about 10 minutes later, he had them so fired up, frenzied, they actually bit onto the side of the boat, grabbed a hold of the side of the boat. Wow. And uh, I've had it on my Instagram. It's a pretty cool picture, but about <laughs> an eight-foot sandbar shark just clamped on the side of the boat because shoal water's only got gunnels that are about probably eight inches off the water. So it's easy for them to... Easy for them to come in. Man. That had to be a fun time. That was neat. But the bad thing was I got a little upset because I had the boat sold and I was supposed to deliver it at the end of that week. And now you got to go told repairs. Them, I don't want to repair any gel coat. Oh. But the the guy he had fishing with us uh, gave me a pretty hefty gratuity, so <laughs> covered any damages. Well, that is cool, man. So back in your Bombardier test days, you went over and you started working on all these tournament teams. Did you do any tournaments? Do you do any tournaments I, now? I did. Um, I did a few IFA tournaments, some IFA redfish tournaments with a few of my friends. I did some extreme redfish tournaments, and, you know, we did pretty good. I did uh, I did four or five King, SK Kingfish tournaments. We actually won Key West tournament one year with my friend Andre Moore. Um, that was pretty cool. Ended up getting a 55-pound king and a 36-pound king the other the next oh, wow. day. wow. So we ended up with uh, winning the professional division and the regional division. And that was the last SK tournament that paid good money, 2009. Oh, wow. I think we ended up with 40 grand cash and a 23 contender to sell. And I had a boat out of it. Yep. Nice. Yep. But I, I wasn't going to fish that tournament. I told Andre, look, man, I just got... Got laid off. I'm starting a guide business. I need to save my money. He's like, man, just come on, drive down to Key West. He goes, I cover everything. I just need you to help me fish. I need you on the boat. I'm like, man, I don't really want to go. I went down there, and so it was pretty cool. And then I fished four or five more after that with him, and we did well in a couple of them. But it's a grind. Tournament fishing's hard, man. It's a lot of expense. It's a lot of money, a lot of time. And uh, there's a lot of egos involved, and I just, I'd rather have a good time. You know, if I go tournament fish, I take off and I don't work for a week and I just go pre-fish and then just try and find fish for a tournament. It's too expensive for me to do something like that. So I, I just chose to either A, go fish with my family or B, you know, do my guide. And I enjoy doing that. You're definitely a good guide. I'm sure your family enjoys it because now your son's a guide. Yeah, yeah. No, he likes it. Um, he gets a little frustrated more than I do with it. You know, he wants, I mean... <laughs> He, he's got the ego, too, just like every fisherman. But if he has a rough day, man, it really bothers him. And and it should. It bothers all of us. But you got to take that to the next step, kick that behind you, and go out and have another day, have, make it a good day. Well. And that's what, you know, 
I always tell people a good guy, a good fisherman doesn't make a good guide. I see people out there all the time that are great fishermen that catch a heck out of fish, and then they become a guide, and then they hate fishing anymore. And they, you got to be able to a entertain clients because you're not catching the whole time. Not every trip. Some trips, you know, they're gangbusters. I've had trips where you go out there and every bait in the water you catch a big fish. Uh, but you got to be able to entertain people, be able to adapt to their style of fishing and your style of fishing, kind of mend those together so that you both can be successful. Because if you see a guy doing the complete wrong thing all the time and you just yell at him, oh, you're doing it wrong, you can't do it like that, you got to do it this way. So you got to kind of adapt those styles and be able to work with them in a way that they can commu- you guys can communicate and both understand what, what needs to be done to make the fishing happen. A lot of guys can't do that. I get so many people on board that say, well, you're not going to yell at us, are you? I said, no, I'm not going to yell at you. Why don't I yell at you? It's like, we're here to have a good time, man. Who have you so, been guiding with that they yell yeah. at you? Well, there's a lot of guides out there, even locally. There's a lot of guides that will sit there and yell at people. Damn it, you're not supposed to do that. I told you, th- I've heard guides yell at their customers, scream at their customers. I'm like, wow. But um, So you, a good fisherman doesn't make a good guide. You've got to be able to communicate. You've got to be able to entertain. You've got to be able to put them on fish. Just because you can catch fish doesn't mean they're going to catch them. So you've got to help them and teach them the best way to catch them that works with how you're fishing. Yeah, how to drift. If that makes sense. How to drift the inlet. There's rocks on the bottom. How to feel that tap, 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 bring it up. Yeah. How to keep the baits alive. I mean, there's so many things. You know, don't set the hook. Uh, just just so many things you got to do to be able to make it work. And again, it's I spend a lot of my time te- teaching people how to cast because... I don't, like I said, I don't always use live bait. I like to use artificial. I love fishing artificial. And I'll have people come and say, well, I don't really know how to. We really want to use live bait. And I said, look, I'll work with you. We'll get the artificials down. And they're like, man, I'm so glad you worked with us. I, I love fishing with artificial now. Yeah. Some days you catch more with artificial than you do live bait. Not all the time, but some days you do. And that, that, that's for everything. Now, that's not, that's not fishing at just the inlet. That's fishing a lot of other places, too. Yeah. Because primarily the inlet in the daytime, that's primarily a live bait fishery. Nighttime is a whole different ballgame. You go in there with plugs, go in there with bucktails, and that, that can be an artificial fishery. But daytime, it's primarily live bait. But the lagoon can be primarily artificial. Uh, the beach can be a lot of artificial. When we're tarpon fishing in the summertime, I'd say 40% of our tarpon come on artificial over live bait. Really? So we're, we're throwing a mix of both. We'll have some baits out. We'll throw live baits. Uh, we'll throw some artificial. So you've got to be able to find something that works for you and adapt your customers to be able to fish the way you do so that you're all successful. Mm. I think uh, I, I like artificial. I like live bait too. Um, I'll just I'll just walk down to the beach with a spoon, good old spoon and treble hook on the back, and I'll wrong. fish the heck out of that. I mean, I hate when I lose them, but there's you know, probably more fish caught on a spoon than most other lures out there. Yeah, there's, and it's not high speed at all. I mean, no, it's just, just got to cast it and retrieve it slow, and that spoon does all the work for you. Yeah, I I, I enjoy it. Um, my other favorite thing to do though is try to hit my inshore home run or slam. I love getting around like the spoil islands or around the sandbars just inside the inlet. And then it seems like trout are easy to pick up. Blues are typically easy to pick up, but trying to find the reds or the snook sometimes, once they come inside that river, it's always been a challenge for me. How do you deal with that once they come in the river? Are you guys it's, live baiting it, popping cork? Location. Yeah. Really, for the redfish. We don't have a lot of school in redfish anymore like we used to. All our habitat's gone, all the grass flats are gone. So you don't find a lot of schooling redfish in the lagoon. So it's picking away at the mangrove shorelines. Mm. That's really what it's about. That's a lot of time. It's a lot of time. And we do that more in the spring and the fall than any other time. Because A, you've got the mullet run in the fall. And we haven't had a good mullet run in five years. I hear a lot of people talking about, oh, mullet runs full swing. We haven't had a good one in five years. This year was better than it has been the last few years but it wasn't a full-on mullet run. From my experience from growing up and, and my guiding experience, five, six years ago, we had some fantastic mullet runs, but they've been slow. And it's a combination of A, habitat, uh, B, hurricanes, and then the red tide we had a couple of years ago. Red tide, ago. yeah. It killed a lot of mullet. And then the other part of it's commercial fishing. The commercial fishermen up north, they've got 
they've got guys bringing in millions of pounds of menhaden a year up north and as well as you know they're bringing mullet in they're bringing all kinds of other stuff yeah the bycatch so when when the when the commercial guys are finding a bunch of mullet somewhere it's just like social media they're calling their oh, yeah i found these here every commercial fisherman and the brother goes right where they're at and catches as many as they can i think i personally think the populations are reduced that's part of the reason why we're seeing smaller mullet runs i'm not 100 percent on that but i think i'm 90 percent there so it's a combination of all those things that's why we have a good mullet run and then b we'll fish inshore a lot in the springtime because we have another bait run it may not always be mullet but we'll get a lot of finger mullet in the lagoon again and then we'll get some filters and glass minnows and all the everything's it's just like springtime outside with your flowers everything's starting to grow again mm -hmm. so all that bait will get back in the lagoon and like you said spoil lines are a fantastic place to fish them um, and then again the, the mangrove shorelines oh yeah so we'll focus on all those areas and you can focus on them with live bait whether from finger mullet filters uh, croaker shrimp um, the problem with live bait and then the mangroves is you're sitting in a spot waiting for a bite or you're cruising the shoreline just pitching a bait out from a fish you see well not everybody can see fish you may be a great fisherman you can see everything not everybody can see that so the way to combat that is artificials just go pluck away at shorelines pick up just like bass fishing guys do plug away at every tree branch hanging over the sh in the water pl plug away at every little pocket every little every little thing you see just keep pitching them in there just through pure repetition and, and pure repetition you'll find out where they're sitting and if you get in a couple fish here and there anchor down work that area for a little bit and then pick up and move on that's good advice really good advice because with the trout trout are usually school fish yeah unless you get the big gators then there'll be a lot of singles two or three but uh with the trout you know they'll be schooling so if you can find a school you can have a good time with the school that's that's I like trout are so much fun to catch because when they hit, they hit hard. You think you got something yeah. big on, and then all of a sudden, it just dies. <laughs> so they're so much fun. It's not like when you when you hook a blue. I mean, they hit, and you're just like, oh man, I, I, there's a monster on the other end of this thing, and you roll in like a little twelve inch blue, and you're like, it was fighting like it was a twenty four inch fish. They fight from start to finish. Actually, the lady I had out today, she goes, oh my gosh, I got a big one on. I got a big one slapping. Oh, it's just another bluefish when she gets into the boat. <laughs> so, yeah, she had a good time with the bluefish and the mackerel. Well, that's cool. So, we know that we've had some damage to the Indian River Lagoon through fishing and waste and runoff and all that. What is your take on this, and how do you think a good way to combat combat this, uh, the lagoon, uh, bringing it back to life? I'm not a scientist by any means. But I've watched all the grass pretty much deteriorate. We had, you know, 40, 50 acre areas just sort of loaded with lush grass. All the flats in the inlet used to be complete lush grass. 2010, 11, we had the bad freezes and that's when a lot of our grass started dying. So I was kind of figuring, you know, maybe some of it was runoff, but I thought maybe some of it froze, but the more and more research and talking to people I found out is all the herbicides are spraying in the fresh water when they open that locks at the Sebastian River, all that water is loaded with those herbicides. It gets flushed out into the lagoon and then just kind of distributes throughout the lagoon. And from what I was told from one of the commercial guys, commercial fishing guys is, a friend of his was a scientist. They had done some soil samples for some testing in a couple of areas and found out that, that those herbicides had got into the soils in the lagoon. And it doesn't just leave, it just stays in there. So a lot of those herbicides that they sprayed all the fresh water, the hydrilla and everything to get rid of it, had moved out into the lagoon and killed a lot of our grass too. And that's kind of my feeling and my understanding from talking to a few people on exactly how it happened. Well, you're not the only now, one. There's several uh, guys that are from like the Captains of Clean Water Act yep. that have published some findings from, from third-party investigating, in third-party scientific investigation companies. So, I mean, you're, you're really not far off, I don't think. Yeah, and, and doing that research, that's kind of what I've, I've learned. And every year you'll start to see some areas, oh, the grass is starting to come back, and you get really excited. And then all of a sudden we get a bunch of rain, they open the locks, and it disappears. 
You can literally see it happen before you your eyes. Literally see it happen because what'll happen is water will get really dark and you'll be, oh man, I, I hope all those herbicides didn't come out. And then you'll go back to that area where you had seen grass a couple weeks ago. It's gone once the water clears up. Yeah. Because usually when we get a bunch of rain like that, um, then it takes a little while. Then they open the locks and the water's brown for a long time. You can't see the bottom. Maybe brown for a couple of weeks. Maybe brown for a month and a half. Then once it clears up again, all the grass is dead. And if you think about how this year went, we didn't have much rain all summer long. We didn't really get much rain till the fall. The lagoon was clear all the way up past Indo Galley. Yeah. Water was crystal clear. I mean, my friend lives up by Melbourne Causeway in the river. Crystal clear, nice green water. Then all of a sudden we got all the rain that fall and everything got dark, algae, killed a lot of stuff up there. Yeah. So what is your take on uh, oyster beds being installed to help filter the water? I think uh, I read a re recent study where it seems like the little test bed they did um, in Melbourne Beach, as a matter of fact, somewhere there, seems like it's clearing up from samples. I think that the, there's no way it's going to hurt. When I was a kid, like I said, back in the day when growing up, six, eight years old, we also had a little sailboat. Me and my brothers could wheel it down to the river, throw it in the water. It was only eight feet long. Had a little aluminum trailer. We'd carry it down by hand, throw it in the water, go sail. We could pull up on a sandbar and bring home 100 clams in a day easily, just picking them up with our feet. Then the commercial clambers cleared the whole lagoon out back in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. Once Long Island Sound was depleted, a lot of the commercial fishermen from up there moved down here, joined our commercial fishermen, they raked the whole lagoon, you couldn't find a clam anywhere. Mm. And theoretically, the theory is, and from what I understand, I'm not a scientist again, but a clam will filter 24 gallons of water a day, or 50 gallons of water a day, one of those two. Mm -hmm. You take out millions and millions of clams out of the water, there's no more filtration Giant system. filtration there. system gone. Uh, the other thing that filters like runoff, when they have runoff areas that have a lot of grass from where the runoff goes into the lagoon, that grass before the lagoon will filter all the water that goes into the lagoon. So I think that, that would help quite a bit. If you look at what Tampa Bay has done, Tampa Bay back in the, I want to say 80s, lost all their seagrass in all of Tampa Bay. Yeah. And they had a huge program where they did a lot of replanting, regrowth, and, and they brought all of it back. It can be done. It's just there's got to be an organization that will work with other organizations that have done it in the past and focus on raising the money to do it. And I, again, I don't know exactly how to get that done, but I know there's ways to do it. And, it's, and working with some of the organizations to have them work with other organizations that have already done it would be the way to get it to come back. Yeah, somebody's already done it. There's no, we don't have to reinvent the wheel no. here. We just need to point in the right direction and somebody no. with that power to help head it up. And, and you know, a couple of people I've talked to, it's everybody wants to do something, but I'm not sure who the right group is to get that done. I know Clean, Captains for Clean Water is working on it. There's a few other ones, but I'm not sure how much headway they've made. Well, I, I hope we make good headway, and I hope somebody takes control of this because it sounds like we have a lot of uh, a lot of worker bees in the area that are willing to jump in. They just don't have that one point of contact to focus everything in the right direction. Yeah, somebody to kind of spearhead everything. And um, if you know Blair Wiggins, who does addictive fishing, they are working on a clam restoration project where they've already dumped hundreds of thousands of clams in Lagoon from Titusville down to Melbourne. And supposedly they're working their way down into into Sebastian area, um, dumping millions of clams. And their, their goal is to do, I think, three million clams a year back in Lagoon. And put them in areas where you're not allowed to harvest them. Perfect. And that will help tremendously as well. And that might help. I don't know if it's going to help filter the pollutants out, but it'll help filter that water and help clean it up. Again, we had crystal clear water. When we don't have a lot of rain... That water's crystal clear, clean, mm -hmm. top to bottom visibility of five, six foot, which you don't see no. very often. And uh, as soon as we get the rain, they open the locks, it just mud. Mm. Well, Captain, I really appreciate today's conversation. And uh, how can everybody on the Coastal Addiction Podcast find you? Well, I appreciate you having me. Thank you very much. Uh, hopefully, uh, you'll find it insightful what we talked about today. But if they need to reach me, uh, they can get me at 321-863-8085 or 
or they can get us on uh, goingcoastalcharters.com. And we also have a Facebook page. Um, my son Jesse, he's got uh, Captain Jesse Austin on Instagram, and I'm Captain Glenn Austin on Instagram. So we're, uh, we're on a couple social medias there. That's awesome. Hey, guys, so if you're having a hard time on social media or surfing the web trying to find Captain Glenn Austin with Ghosting, Going Coastal Charters, go ahead and head on over to coastaladdiction.com and go to our partners page and you'll see a little link down there and it'll be for Captain Glenn, take you right to his website and you'll be able to find him and um, go out and have a good time fishing with him in the lagoon or offshore or maybe even with his son doing some offshore fishing. What's, uh, what's the best time of year for, for fishing with you out here in the Special Inlet area? June through August. June through August? Yep, that's right. our tarpon fishing offshore time. There's your tip, everyone. June through August, call Captain Glenn. Get in, book it now. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Hey, guys, if you're looking to continue to feed that coastal addiction lifestyle, then head on over to the Coastal Estate Team. Carolyn and Kelly do an amazing job helping you find the perfect home or helping you sell your home. See, not all agents are created equal, and the Coastal Estate Team proves that day after day with the hard work and dedication. But don't take my word for it. Head on over to lifebythebeach.com and get a hold of Carolyn, or you can go to kellysoldit.com, that's K-E-L-L-I-E, soldit.com, and see what they can do for you. Thanks for listening to the Coastal Addiction Lifestyle Podcast. If you like today's topic or any of our other topics, please like and subscribe. You can head on over to our website at www.coastaladdiction.com. You can also check us out on social media, Instagram, Coastal, double underscore, Addiction, Facebook, Coastal Addicted, or head over to YouTube at Coastal Addiction. Until next time, mahala.